Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. And in our ongoing study of the Lord, as He's making His way to the cross, it is ramping up this conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace against the Pharisees' gospel of self-righteousness. Sometimes when you read the gospels, you wonder, how is it that at times He was so soft and outreaching and compassionate to a particular kind of individual, and then with others, he seemed to be immediate in his scathing rebukes. For example, in John 8, you know, the woman who was caught in adultery and lived in a moral life, and she was, of course, hauled before him as a test to him, and the Pharisees were saying, by law, it's lawful, she needs to be stoned. What are you going to say about it? And you remember, he, he began to talk about whether or not anyone in the in the crowd could cast the first stone, being themselves sinless, and they all left, and she said, who, who accuses you? And she said, no one, Lord, and he said, neither do I accuse you, go and sin no more. There was a tenderness to that moment. On other occasions, he seemed to be quite immediate and blunt in his reproof, such as on the Temple Mount when, when there was marketing going on in the house of prayer, and zeal consumed him, and he developed a little cord and began to whip those out of the temple and off the temple mount and out of their business uh, dealings and, and turning tables over and saying, look, you cannot turn my father's house into this kind of thing. And at other times, he seemed to be even compassionate with Jewish leaders like Nicodemus who came to him at night with genuine interest but cluelessness. And he talked with him and said, you know, you don't understand spiritual things. You need to start thinking spiritually, Nicodemus. But at the same time, it wasn't a blunt rebuke. And on the other hand, on the Temple Mount later in his ministry, he's with the Pharisees. And Matthew 23 says, you hypocrites, cursed are you, cursed are you because of your hypocrisy. You see this way in which Jesus responds to people. And the fundamental reason there is such a difference is because of the nature of the sin and blindness. Hypocrisy is what Jesus is dealing with at times, and it is of such a devastating nature that he has to put a stop to it to protect not only the truth of the gospel, but generations whom he is saving. In fact, you could go all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. There was hypocrisy in its immediate form, its most ugly form, and it was destructive and was about to send Adam and Eve into a permanent state of unredeemable status. You say, how so? Well, you remember what happened. Adam rebelled, and when he rebelled, sin entered his life, and what was the first thing he tried to do? He tried to cover his own sin. Instead of running to God as the only stronghold, the only help, he tried to cover his own sin, and then he blamed God and everyone around him. This was self-righteousness at its core. This was not only rebellion, but Phariseeism. It was hypocrisy to imagine that you could atone for yourself before a holy God when you knew you were guilty. It's the essence of hypocrisy. And what did God do? He sent an angel at the garden and said, you're not going back in there. Why? It was mercy. That was mercy on God's part. You're not going back into the garden because I do not want you eating or participating in eternal things and leaving yourself in this unredeemable state. I want to redeem, as he promised in Genesis 3.15. It was a mercy to call out hypocrisy because it is the most devastating sin of all. 
What is the essence of it and why the collision all the time? Well, wherever Jesus labeled someone a hypocrite, he was calling out a particular kind of weakness. And at its most basic level, you remember Luke's gospel has recorded it over and over again, most notably in Luke 6.46, where it says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do what I say? There is the core issue. On the outside, you say one thing, but on the inside, you're something else you never want to deal with. You actually want to dress it up, pretend, offer it before God as something adequate. This will crush the soul forever. God knows that. He cannot have that. At the ground floor level, the heart of hypocrisy says one thing and never deals ultimately with the substance as God has defined it. You claim to be one thing while your actions betray, betray something quite the opposite. Just listen to the descriptions in Scripture. Don't turn there, but just listen to these. 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's hypocrisy to say one thing and do the opposite and claim that you're in the right. Mark 7, verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There it is. There's, there's a pretense coming from your lips of religion, but your heart isn't there. It's not in it. The real works aren't happening. Matthew 6, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Look, you have no eternal value, no relationship with God if you practice some sort of religious pretense in front of others to appear a certain way, but you never really deal with the condition of your eternal soul. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him, Titus 1.16. And Jesus had said in Matthew 23, when he was on that temple mount cursing the Pharisees, listen, in the same way, you, on the outside, you appear to be righteous, but on the inside, you're full of wickedness. We saw that in Luke chapter 20, referencing it some weeks ago when we were talking about hypocrisy. Beware of the teachers of the law, Jesus said. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. This, this is soul-destroying. This is spiritually blinding. This devastates families and communities for generations. This is why God deals with it so straightforward. In the proverbial sort of New Testament language of James, James 1, 22 and 23, don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says, it's like looking in a mirror, walking away, and you forget. You're not really looking closely or intently to what the real issues are in your life. They used to disguise their faces. Matthew 6, 16 says, when they would fast, they'd put on a slouch and they'd make their faces look like they were gaunt and without food. All the while, they're not supposed to tell anyone they're fasting. They're just doing it for God. But no, it's all about the appearance when it comes to hypocrisy. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Listen, beloved, in its most sophisticated forms, hypocrisy puts on a religious mask, and then puffs itself up in pride with a, with a veneer of spirituality 
that's supposed to give that sense of themselves that they are close to God and it elevates them above other people. There is the, the sort of the twin problem in religious hypocrisy. I get to feel like I'm close to God the way I want to feel. In other words, I set up a criteria for how I want to view myself. I make it up. I conjure it up. I get it sort of embedded in my visceral life. I feel close to God. Now I sort of am close to God and I'm above other people because they're sinning sins I don't sin. Or at least I don't admit it. I just have an outside that looks spiritual, but the inside, I'm not dealing with my heart. Listen, at the time of this particular synagogue showdown between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, Israel was in that condition. They were in full-scale religious hypocrisy. So we could say they puffed themselves up with pride, conforming to to the little details of their little traditions, as we've seen, which they placed over the top of the law. They didn't even look at the law anymore, didn't even look at whether it was in context. They just put their little traditions over the top of it, made it easier to obey their little traditions and appear spiritual. And then they used their quote-unquote obedience to feel close to God and above other people. And Jesus dealt with it straightforward because it was dangerous. So blinding, so self-righteous, so perpetuating of the destructiveness to the soul, it would leak to families and generations and communities. Pharisees would strain at the smallest little detail of tradition and ignore what the law actually says about the heart. In fact, on one scathing occasion, Jesus said that very thing. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You would strain out the smallest little gnat, just the details of your life to to look at how you appear. And while you're doing that, you're gaping in your spiritual weakness and gaps in your life and a camel goes in. For, For the gnat to be kept out, you're opened up to to massive problems coming in the back door. And so Luke records an incident here where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's still headed to Jerusalem, you remember. Yet he's asked by some synagogue officials to teach in the synagogue on his way down to Jerusalem. So as a visiting rabbi, while he's on his journey, would you teach? That's what they said to him. And on this occasion, once again, gross hypocrisy is exposed in its in its most hideous colors, and it happens as Jesus displays another one of those amazing tender moments of mercy that we've so often seen in his ministry on his way to the cross. Luke chapter 13, follow along as I begin in verse 10. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double and couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from your sickness. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? 
And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, as the story unfolds, I want you to, I want us to look at this sort of low-level type of hypocrisy which, which stoops at merely appearing spiritual on the outside while never facing what's in the heart. And it comes out in this scenario in a way that allows Jesus then to expose it, to unmask it. What is he unmasking? First of all, he's unmasking form over substance. So just in general, to be a religious hypocrite is to desire form over substance. It's not just that it's form over substance, it's the desire to have form over substance. Here's the hard work of dealing with the heart. The hypocrite says, I won't deal with that. There's an easier way by which I can commend myself to God on my own and elevate myself above others who are worse than I in my mind. I'm not just form over substance. I actually desire it. That's what I want. I want the easier way. I don't want to deal with what God says I have to deal with. I don't want to deal with my heart. I don't want to face the inside. More love to thee, O Christ. Maybe for you, it's just singing the words. But maybe for you, you, you say to other people, oh, I love Christ. This week, I loved him more. Really? What about in here? That's the issue. Hypocrisy should be ran from as fast and hard as you can run, even after Christ, after coming to Christ and all your previous hypocrisy is forgiven at the cross, we still can desire form over substance. That's a problem. Furthermore, you can't dress it up, though you may try. A religious hypocrite tries to dress up what cannot be beautified. It's it's what Christians know full well. You, you could never make yourself good enough to be righteous before God. Christ had to die. You needed a substitute. We admit that every time we give our testimony. We walk in grace. We admit it every day that we had to have Christ bring beauty to our, to our ugly, sin-filled lives. He had to forgive. He had to bring the beauty for ashes. And yet, if you try to beautify your own life on the outside, you have done what the religious hypocrite has tried to do and cannot be done. And worse, if it goes far enough, if religious hypocrisy goes far enough, you will be what Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23, blind guides. In other words, you'll start leading other people in it. Like Israel in Romans 2, you, you say that you're teachers of other people, and yet you commit the same sins. You'll purport to lead others. And so as this story unfolds, you're going to see hypocrisy in all of its colors. And I'm just going to give you four, four things about hypocrisy you've got to know, four realities about hypocrisy. This is its trajectory. These things are always true of hypocrisy. They will always be true of hypocrisy. And if you think you can get by with even a little hypocrisy in your life without fighting it and battling it, you are in serious, serious trouble already. Hypocrisy has a trajectory. And it has a seedbed. And like James says, once sin is conceived, it gives birth. First of all, we note here that hypocrisy is spiritually barren. 
It is spiritually barren. You say, what do you mean? Well, back up to verse 6. You remember the parable Jesus told? He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, uh, the vineyard keeper, behold, for these three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put it in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You remember we looked at this as God's patience? How God waits and waits and waits. He's patient and is working for you to not perish. Well, why does Luke then go on to this healing on the Sabbath? There's no indication that this was the next thing in the sequence. There's no indication from the text that this is the next thing that happened from the parable to the teaching in the synagogue. Luke just records that this did happen on their way to Jerusalem, and he puts it right here. Why? Because he's looking at the other side of the parable. Cut that thing down. It's bearing no fruit. What is he saying? He's saying, look, God is patient, but man, when it came to Israel, they were already in full-scale hypocrisy. He wanted to cut it down. It was like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 5. God said, I planted a vineyard, and I wanted fruit from it. I wanted grapes from it. Israel was my vineyard. I planted her, and she produced nothing. Why? Because she began to call evil good and good evil. Listen to Isaiah 5. I planted a vineyard. I wanted it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones, Isaiah 5 verse 2. Why? Because those in Israel call good evil and evil good. They substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Here's why. They are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. They justify wickedness for a bribe, and they take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. They are reversed in everything. Their heart is far from God. Everything is upside down in their life. On the outside, they are pretending to have it right side up. But in here, it is upside down. And Luke records this account here in chapter 13 because he is looking at the other side of that parable. Cut that thing down. It's not producing any fruit. Hypocrisy is always barren. It doesn't produce anything in your children, in your grandchildren. It always leads people astray. It always blinds. It further blinds you. It blinds those around you. You've seen that. Even in your own Christian life, where you're a phony in your own Christian life, others around you get in the mess. They get splashed on, trashed. You're to be honest before the Scriptures. We're not perfect in it, but you must battle it. You must fight it, even as a Christian. But man, religious hypocrisy can take someone hardened all the way to the end of their life. I, I have family members on my wife's side. They've been in works-based religious systems all their life, and some of the seniors have gone to their grave hardened, and, and, and it's in their heart demanding that God accept what they have offered. And they're blind, and the influence just spreads, and it goes on generation after generation communities, whole communities, whole cultures. Look, hypocrisy never will produce anything but barrenness, and if you don't run from it, you must think otherwise. And Luke records this right here, this account, to show you just that. Cut it down. Now, 
Their barrenness, their hypocrisy is also seen in the fact that they invited Jesus to teach. Just thinking about the barrenness of hypocrisy spiritually, they invited Jesus to teach. Verse 14 says it was a synagogue official. Luke mentions that this occurred on the Sabbath because he's recording those times when the Pharisees clashed with Jesus over their self-righteous law-keeping. Luke is exposing again the fact that all along the way to the cross, Jesus had one message, the gospel of grace, repentance and faith in him alone, and it, it constantly exposed the stubborn pride of any religious system that said, no, I don't have to repent, I don't have to believe in you, I, I should be acceptable to God on my own. And yet, since the hostilities were at a fever pitch at this stage in Jesus' ministry, this invitation is also hypocrisy. They're inviting Jesus, it would seem, to intend some sort of exposing of him in some error or some inconsistency in his teaching like they'd done so many times. They want to charge him with spiritual fraud, especially this late in his ministry. So again, the contrast now begins. They're spiritually barren. They're not producing anything in the people. They're not, they're not seeing any real, real producing of spiritual fruit in their own walk. They're just blind Jesus comes in, and the contrast is going to be really stark. He's invited to teach under spiritual pretense on their part. And in the midst of it, Jesus gets very proactive about meeting a need. So while he's invited to teach, he's involved in the needy lives of the people who are there. And he's about to, to bring about a major contrast. Verse 11, behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and couldn't straighten up at all. You know, just, just 18 years jumps out at you in this account. 18 years. I mean, we don't know anything more about her than that brief description. But from what Luke records, we can surmise some things about her apart from this obvious physical problem, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But apart from her obvious physical problem... Several things seem apparent, even, even if you were to sort of surmise them from the scant information we're given. First of all, her presence seems inconsequential. In other words, people don't, people don't make note of her. There's no note given by Luke that it was uh, a surprise as if she were there for the first time. No, this is a regular thing for her to come to the worship of the, the synagogue. At this point, she's likely devotional because she is a woman of the new covenant of the Old Covenant. She's a Jewess. She is an Israelite, a daughter of Abraham, the text says in verse 16. So despite her longstanding illness and the challenges it presented, she was devoted to the law of God, believed it was an honor to God to obey it, and she came to the synagogue for the teaching and for the prayer and the praising of God. She was a devotional woman, at least insofar as we could tell at that level. And her presence there is inconsequential in the sense that nobody notices it. It's so regular. It's so common. Oh, there's the bent over woman. She's regularly there. Furthermore, her disposition seems to be, at least as far as we can tell, somewhat penitent. Because this is someone who worships God out of a deep humility given the painful life she comes out of. The text says she was bent over by this illness, which was caused by a spirit. Moments later, Jesus identifies the source of that spirit as the kingdom of darkness itself. Luke records no sense that she comes to the synagogue expecting to be given some relief by God. There's no sense of that. 
even though the Pharisee later accuses her of it. Uh, there's no sense in which the visiting rabbi owes her anything. We don't, we don't get that. She doesn't even ask for a healing. Jesus calls her over. He's the one that's proactive. There's nothing here to suggest that she spends her days in bitter complaining that God hasn't answered her prayer for relief, which to me is remarkable. 18 years, dysfunctional and, pain, and pained by, by this, and she is not demanding. You remember the thief on the cross in the middle of his circumstances, and he is railing at Jesus. Hey, why don't you save yourself and us if you're who you say you are? This woman isn't railing at God. She just comes every day to the synagogue or, or every Sabbath day to the synagogue to worship and to pray and to know the law of God and to sit under the teaching of the local rabbis and Pharisees. Likely, it's, it's likely that she's just thankful to no longer be involved in whatever sin it was that opened her up to the demon's bondage and the physical torment that came from it. She's just likely overwhelmed with gratitude that that is done, even though she is reaping some sort of consequence. It seems that she's devotional in the sense that she has a right heart insofar as believing that it's righteous to obey the law of God because it's an honor to God, and she's no longer a part of her past life, so far as we can tell, despite the fact that her sins have had very debilitating and physical consequences. In fact, when Jesus meets her most long-standing physical need, verse 13 says she began glorifying God. I don't know that she's saved. The text doesn't say that she comes into the new covenant. It's just that she was already glorifying God for her condition, uh, her ability to come to the synagogue and be a part of obeying the law of God. And after she's healed and blown away at the relief, she is glorifying God. To some degree then, she's a devotional woman. But... She's also a devastated woman. I mean, she is devastated. Verse 11, 18 years, a sickness caused by a spirit, bent double, couldn't straighten up. This is the description of a doctor. This is Luke. He's a physician, and when he records these accounts, particularly of demon possession, he's, he's always recording them, it seems, as a marvel and in more detail than the other gospel writers because... He could never do anything for someone demon-possessed, and yet he's a physician and probably wanted to so desperately. And he describes the illness just exactly as a doctor would. What's the length of the infirmity? 18 years. What's the cause? A weakness in her physical life, a frailty literally in the original. And in this case, some sort of bone structure weakness or frailty, some sort of muscular problem or weakening, and it's ultimately brought on, the text says, by the woman's past life of rebellion against the truth and a wickedness that resulted, which left her in bondage to a demon, and that demon made her pay big time. Somehow, in this staggering revelation on the part of the Holy Spirit, this woman's ongoing consequence for 18 years thus far is that she is physically um, unhealthy, tortured in some way, even distorted. There's nothing to suggest she's currently possessed by a demon here. There's nothing to suggest she was ever possessed by a demon. But apparently her condition is the ongoing, life-altering result of some kind of violent demonic attack 18 years prior. 
that the results of which are still under the power of Satan's dominion as the evil continues to have its consequence in her life. I mean, that is difficult and bizarre, let alone the length of time of it. What's the effect? Luke writes it. She's bent double. The literal is she's bowed forward, and it's, it's clearly intending to convey a very painful position for the neck and the spine. She is half the height that she would be in her normal condition. She is bent completely over and has to function with pain in all that that would create. The prognosis, she's never been able to fully straighten, it says. Literally, she couldn't straighten completely or fully. So that comes with all the attendant personal and practical problems, as well as the intense physical pain endured every day. This woman is devastated. She is helpless. 18 years of some kind of painful nerve damage, spinal weakness, some debilitating muscular contraction. She can't function as a normal person like the community around her. She's likely in need of help from family and friends or anybody who would give her the basics of life and help her with it. Doctors? Oh, I'm sure she's been to every single possible cure and has tried everything and never had any relief. This is hopeless and despairing kind of stuff. If that weren't enough, the stigma in a community. So she's a fixture. She's always around. Everybody knows, oh, there's the bent over woman. Uh, and the stigma is that, oh, that, that's where that came from was a life of sin. Everybody knows that that woman was... XYZ, and she got involved in the occult and was tortured by an evil spirit who's probably still on her or in her. We don't get near her. She is cursed. So 18 years of that. Her condition is no longer a novelty. The community probably gave up hope of ever seeing her in some sort of different state. Every day, she was lonely. And stigma of her life was unwelcome to others. Nobody got involved in, with her life. It's too complicated helping her out all the time. She's one of the unfortunate souls who seem to be under the curse from God. And, and these kinds of conditions surely burdened Luke because he'd spent his life working to cure these kind of physical ailments and could do nothing for someone like this. And so he loved to record these moments in the life of the Lord Jesus, the great physician. Especially this one on this occasion, because as spiritually barren as the hypocrites in the room were, to even provide any compassion to her, you have here not only a devastated woman, but she's in the presence of a, a proactive Savior. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, I mean, what must that have been like? Call her over. I mean, she's got to painfully travel across the synagogue to where he is and try to look up at him. We don't know if he crouched down or what. He's probably sitting in his teaching position so he could meet her a little closer to her posture. And he said to her, woman, you're freed from your sickness, <laughs> loosed. You're released from your frailty, literally. And he laid his hands on her, and 
she had to go through six months rehab and a long history of medical work afterwards. <laughs> I love how the gospel writers just use the word immediately over and over again. Luke uses it often for that reason. I mean, he never saw results like that. Immediately she was made erect again. So, so Jesus declared her released from her sickness and physically, he puts his hands on her. He doesn't have to. He could just speak it. He could just think it. It could just happen according to the will of our sovereign God. And, and yet he puts his hands on her because it's tender. It's close range. It also conveys the immediate source. If she's immediately healed and brought to her upright stature, his hands on her would be a vivid picture of where the power came from and who it is attending Christ himself, that's the whole point. The point isn't her healing. The point is that if he has divine power, then what he says ought to be listened to about being the Messiah. And by the way, go back to the Old Testament. It says he would have this power. So if he has it, you can't deny who he is. So he put his hands on her to demonstrate his power physically. And then that would become the illustration of his spiritual power. As I said, there's no indication she gets saved. There's no indication she's in the new covenant. She's a part of the old covenant. She's a daughter of Abraham. There's no indication she's saved, but it is an illustration to everyone in the room. If he has that kind of power physically over disease and death, then spiritually he's not barren. His power isn't spiritually barren. Only the hypocrites can't do anything spiritually because they are blind. But Jesus can take care of your spiritual life. What a proactive Savior we have to do things like that, to expose somebody's blindness in grace and then, and then take care of a need. Verse 13, she began glorifying God. What a, what a praise-filled response from the woman. So number one, hypocrisy is barren. Number two, hypocrisy is loveless. You want to know how to tell a hypocrite? They're loveless. Notice verse 14. This is absolutely stunning. The synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, <laughs> he began saying, and you'd expect it to say to Jesus or to the woman, but he said to the crowd in response. So this is in response to the healing, he turns to the crowd as the official in the synagogue, and he says, Look, there are six days in which work should be done, so you come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> can, you, can you just read that and, and skip it? No, you can't skip that. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, what a slab of ecclesiastical granite. <laughs> I love that. In other words, hardened and dead and lifeless like a rock. What a slab of ecclesiastical granite. He had no heart to pity the poor bent woman's plight, no eye for the beauty of Christ's compassion, no soul to rejoice with the woman's deliverance, and no ear for the music of her praise. He was a chicken-hearted religious snob. End quote. Oh, I love that. That's the only way to respond to verse 14, other than shock. The utter lack of love and compassion for what really matters is astonishing. See, how does a hypocrite get there? Well, here's the hypocrite's stock and trade game plan. Here it is. It's very simple. Hypocrite's game plan begins, number one, with ignoring the facts. Notice, he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. 
No, 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 no. You, you, you totally missed the point. Jesus healed, period. The Messiah says he would come healing. Jesus healed, period. You, you said, no, no, no. I, I get there was a healing, but let's go on to the day he, he did it. That, that ain't right. I mean, this is ignoring the facts. This is, this is stock and trade stuff for a hypocrite. They always ignore the facts. Hey, w- w- what's in your life? What's, what's the evidence of your life? What's the evidence of whether you obey the word of God? What, how do you deal with Jesus Christ? How do you deal with commands to obey? Well, I, I don't want to deal with that. I want to talk about, the, I want to pick on the process, you see. Hey, look, we're trying to confront you for some sin in your life. Yeah, but the way you confronted me was not good. Well, is this sin true of you? Hey, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the way it was done. This is stock and trade practice of hypocrisy to always pick on the process and ignore the facts. Secondly, a hypocrite's game plan involves the reciting of Scripture in general. Notice he says, he goes back to the law, well, six days you can work and then... You come during those days to get healed, but you don't come on the Sabbath day. Oh, that's rich. Regardless of context or clarity, listen, he's wrong about the Sabbath. Healing on the Sabbath was never forbidden because there were a few other things that were also allowed on the Sabbath when your home life uh, demanded it, as Jesus points out. But these guys created a definition of, of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, making it easier for them to look spiritual, and then they held a different standard over the top of Jesus and this woman, which wasn't really a fair standard at all because it didn't involve what the Old Testament really meant about the Sabbath, and it ultimately was just a pretense. They recite, he recited Scripture, but he didn't, he didn't think about context or clarity. He pretended to be concerned for the truth. Listen, hypocrites do that all the time. Oh, listen, let's open the Scriptures. You just quoted five Scriptures. Let's open the Scriptures and see what the context is. No, I'm just telling you, those. that's what the Scriptures mean. You ever had somebody do that? You ever open the Scriptures to try to help someone see their blindness and they don't really want to get specific? You want to talk about truth, but they want to get vague? Listen, when somebody wants to get vague, you know right there that there's a pretense going on. You don't know how deep. You may not know to what spiritual end, but there's a pretense going on. If you don't want to open the Scriptures and look clearly at its implications for your heart, you have the seeds of hypocrisy growing in your life. The Scriptures are clarity. The Scriptures unmask our pretense. The Scriptures, by God's grace, give us the truth in every way we need it. Isn't that what Hebrews 4.12 says? It goes down to dividing between the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Oh, you don't want that sometimes. Hypocrisy is loveless in the sense that it doesn't love God, it doesn't love the truth, and it doesn't love others. It just loves itself and its own opinion. The hypocrite's game plan ignores the facts, recites Scripture out of context without clarity, and... The hypocrite's game plan includes a subtle attack and sometimes not so subtle. Notice what he does. He blames the woman. He implicates the woman as if she came here for a healing on the Sabbath, which she didn't. He says there are six days in which work should be done, so come during those days and get healed. As if she came to be healed on the Sabbath. He blames her, and he doesn't talk to Jesus directly, but talks to the crowd sort of like in a subtle moment of general instruction when he's really just taking a blow at Christ and saying, oh, 
You see, you don't obey the law. I'm more righteous than you. This is a lack of love for God, a lack of love for others, a love for self. No true care for others, because that would require personal sacrifice on their part. And they don't, hypocrites don't sacrifice for anyone. They love, they love their little world, their little bubble, their little definition of things. And a hypocrite doesn't have any true interest in properly applying the truth, because that would require that you actually practice it. And they don't want to do that. So they, get, they love to get vague, even though they preach harshly to others. Number three, hypocrisy is a disdain then for the truth covered in pretense. Hypocrisy isn't a love of the truth, no matter how many verses you quote. Hypocrisy is disdain for the truth covered in a pretense. It's covered in the pretense. Notice, he does this indirectly. And the Lord answers him, verse 15. The Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. And he asked two questions. Does not each of you... On the Sabbath, untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him. And then this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath? See, the hypocrite thinks he's being clever and exposing Jesus in breaking the Sabbath. Jesus points out that the Sabbath never made an issue about that. Nor do they follow such a rule they're trying to put on her and Jesus because they untie their animals and go water them on the Sabbath. Talk about blatant. Lenski said it this way, these hypocrites set up a definition of forbidden work, which wasn't forbidden by the Sabbath, and then they apply their definition against Jesus and not against themselves. You can see what they're doing. Their hypocrisy was the greater because what they called work in the case of Jesus was not work by even their own definition, while what they did was indeed work according to this definition. Man, they're as guilty as they're blaming her for being and him for being, and yet that was no real definition of the Sabbath and what it forbid at all. They knew that because when they're alone, they take their animals and they go take care of them on the Sabbath. This is about as ugly as it gets right here. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath lose his animal? I love the way Luke records it as Jesus said it. Jesus used these terms. You know, here's a woman bound up, needs to be loosed. He says, you're freed, you're loosed. And then he brings up animals. This is just great because they untie the rope with their hands. They hold the rope. They lead the animal out. They tie it up again after they've gone out and get it, gotten it water. The divine law never forbid this act on the Sabbath. And so what is Jesus' point? His answer piles up on them. He asks two questions and it just piles up on them, exposing their hypocrisy. You say, what is, what is he saying to them? Here's what he's saying. You would do for your animals what you refuse to do for human beings on the Sabbath. And then hold that against them. You would give yourselves the privilege of a child of Abraham. Remember in John 8? Oh, Jesus, Jesus was saying to them, unless they believe that he is who he says he is, they're going to die in their sins. And they said, we're children of Abraham. And he said, you're not free. If you believe in the truth, the truth will set you free. They said, we're not bound by anyone. We're children of Abraham. They use being Jews as a privilege, and this daughter of Israel, they won't even give the same privilege. That is ugly. A sister of the covenant. 
And they won't even afford her the same privilege they illegitimately afford themselves by being children of Abraham, thinking that gives them some special privilege. They won't even give her the special privilege they think all children of Israel have, because in the moment, it doesn't serve their purpose. What serves their purpose in the moment is hating Jesus and trying to make a fool of him. You would loose your animals physically to water and feed them, but you refuse to thank God that this woman was loosed from her consequences of her weakness. You'll loose your animals, but this woman gets loosed from her physical weakness in a miracle which demonstrates Jesus' power enough to handle your spiritual bondage and you ignore it. You don't ignore your animals when they're thirsty. You loose them, but you ignore thanking God for her being loosed and relieved then from her problem, stigma, bondage. You see, his answer just piles up on them. And so hypocrisy, on the one hand, is spiritually barren. It is loveless. On the other hand, it is disdained for the truth and covered in pretense. And all we can say about it, lastly, is that hypocrisy is deserving of humiliation and disdain of its own. Verse 17, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. <laughs> That's what all hypocrisy deserves. Listen, if you want to battle hypocrisy, you have to see it for what it is. It has one trajectory. This is all hypocrisy ever is. This is all it will ever do. It's all it will ever bring. It is barren spiritually, it is loveless, it is uncaring, it is pretentious, it says it loves the truth, religious hypocrisy does, but it really hates the truth. It will always move people away from the truth, it will always be vague about the truth, it will always argue with the truth secretly while pretending to love the truth on the outside. We sometimes allow patterns and seeds of hypocrisy in our lives as believers and yet Jesus makes it clear here, hypocrisy is deserving of humiliation. It always humiliates a life. It is deserving of being humiliated. It is pretense that when you unmask it, it's just ugly. How ugly is this guy and this crowd who, who's with him? Jesus says hypocrites, plural. There's people in this room who like what this guy's saying to me, and I'm about to unmask all of them. And, of course, the goal was not, as I said, her healing, but the goal was what Luke records here. The entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And, of course, you know, there's nothing necessarily that proves that the crowd was honoring God in their personal heart, but you, you have to hope that they in their rejoicing over the glorious things being done, they came after the synagogue service to talk to the woman and maybe talk to Jesus. And some came to Christ, perhaps. Some came out of their spiritual hypocrisy. Maybe even a Jewish leader or two. In the grace of God, maybe. God is doing His work. We won't have time to get it today. We're done. But the next thing Jesus does is... He speaks of the parable of how, how the gospel spreads. And I love that because what he's saying here is hypocrisy never spreads anything but destruction. It never blinds, uh, it never does anything but blind generations and communities. And yet when, 
When Christ does his gospel work, it isn't through religious pretense. It is one heart at a time moving upon people's hearts so that their life actually changes. They actually deal with the heart. And so the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed and the leaven. It goes in where you don't see it, and it begins to sprout and do its work. Don't believe the religious pretense of those who parade themselves around as better than everybody else and feeling good about themselves before God. Get away from, his, from spiritual hypocrisy. Run from it. Run from it in your own life. Don't ever allow that which only destroys. The only trajectory hypocrisy's ever had is that. It's barren, it's loveless, it produces nothing, it's disdain for the truth while pretending to love the truth, and it is deserving of humiliation and scorn. In our lives, <clears throat> you must battle it. You will battle it all your life, but you must battle it. You must run from these things so that you don't become a source through which someone else's life is moved toward blindness in their spiritual life. What an account. How amazing to see hypocrisy unmasked once again. Why does Jesus deal harshly with it? Because it will destroy the soul, beloved. Hypocrisy will destroy the soul. If you've, if you've grown up in a religious work system, you might be prone toward it. If you grew up self-atoning, believing you could offer yourself before God or atone for your own sin somehow in good works, you, you got to run from that stuff. If you believe you're better than other people and less of a sinner, if you believe you're more savable than other people, if you believe somehow that God looked to your family because you were religious, all that's got to go. All of it's got to go. Come to Christ on the basis of one thing. You are in desperate need of salvation and his forgiveness, which only comes by repentance and faith in him alone. This was where the center of the collision was. Anything less is straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...